Well, you've got another Hughes in the pulpit this morning, but it's the old one. And uh, I'm, your pastor's away on a retreat about adopting adoptive children, and I'm pleased to be in the pulpit this morning. Keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4, as was read this morning. Great ending to a chapter on uh, faith alone. It used to be that one of the favorite books around our house was the Guinness Book of World Records. And it had been on our shelf for years. And now and then when our boys were at home those years ago, I would see one of them, and likely your pastor Carrie, reading it to stock up on trivia. How much did the heaviest man weigh? 1,069 pounds. I know that's been beaten today. This is an older book. How tall was the tallest man of modern times? Eight foot 11. His shoe size was 37 double A. Long, thin foot. What is the world's record for bearing children? One woman, 69 children. How's that? Well, first of all, she was a, a Russian woman who achieved great honor in her country. This is how she did it. Eight sets of twins. Seven sets of triplets. Four sets of quads. Sixty-nine children. Now, this is, this is great trivia. I, 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 actually, for her, it wasn't trivial, I can tell you that. <laughs> but uh, it's terribly important to a family who likes this kind of stuff, dog-eared copy of the Guinness Book of World Records. But alas, when I did look at the Guinness Book of World Records, it states that the oldest mother on record gave birth in 1956, and then it was at the age of 57. This is, this is before uh, in vitro fertilization, right? I, I just checked. I just checked yesterday. The world's record today is age 74. A woman from India uh, who had uh, IVF gave birth 74 years old, the first time a mother. But you know, that's not the world's record. That's entirely wrong. Because here in the last part of Romans 4, it focuses on events around the true world record for the oldest mother ever and the world-changing implications of that birth. Now, you know that that's Sarah, and uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the background here in the book of Romans is this. Paul had made a masterful argument for the justification by faith in Romans 3, culminating in a summary statement, which uh, ought to be in all of our hearts. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. Justification by faith. It's where we, Martin Luther 
uh, voice the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we get that Latin term, sola fide, faith alone. That is, we're saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things we do. That's, that's a great statement of that doctrine in Romans 3.28. Then here in chapter 4, that we read the last part of chapter 4 this morning, Paul sustained the argument that justification comes by faith alone by turning to the famous example of Abraham, the patriarch. As recorded in Genesis 15, as was read this morning, when God took the childless, discouraged, worn out patriarch to be out under the stars who was mourning the fact that he didn't have any children, that his servant Eliezer was going to inherit his household. God took him outside. You can imagine in Palestine, clear, really clear. And God said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And so I can uh, imagine, I think very realistically, that Abraham looked up and where well, you can really see the stars. And he sees our galaxy. And he sees the Milky Way. And he sees Arcturus and the Pleiades and the Bear and beyond that just vast array of stars which he cannot number. And then God said to him as he looked up, so shall your offspring be. What a statement for a man with no children. And it tells us about Abraham, and he believed the Lord. He really did believe that in that moment, in his despair. And then we have this great foundational statement and that is he that is God counted it to him that's Abraham as righteousness he believed the bare word of God uh, the reformation had a, a name for this which you, you'll catch uh, what it says it's, it's the verbum nudum the naked word he believed that, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And the interesting thing is, is that when he did this, this was 14 years before he was circumcised, while Abraham was yet a Gentile. So the teaching that we get from this is that Paul's conclusion is that, that righteousness came to Abraham by faith alone, and it is equally to all by faith alone when we believe his word. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, here in today's text that was read this morning, verses 17 through 25, Paul explains the nature of true faith, describing what went on inside of Abraham relative to the miraculous world-setting uh, birth of Isaac. That's what you see. And it, it, it's almost as if Paul, there were some wing nuts on top of his head, and he unfastened the wing nuts and picked up the top of his cranium and allowed us to look in to what is going on in his mind and heart in this matter of belief. 
And in looking at it, it'll help us to understand. And so it's really simple to follow. First, you get uh, how he regarded the object of his faith. And then secondly, we see Abraham's regard for the obstacles to his faith, what he thought about the things that were in the way. And lastly, Abraham, what he thought about the objective of his faith. What was his faith all about? Well, to begin with, this matter of his regard of the object of faith, the object of his faith was God alone. And according to verse 17, you read this. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, and he says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. The God who gives life to the dead, the God who calls into existence the things that don't exist. That is the object of his faith. Now, what we understand is that the object of your faith is the most important thing. Uh, faith on its own, strong as it could be, powerful as it can be, doesn't mean anything if it's placed on the wrong object. It's wintertime. Uh, some people have had strong faith in thin ice didn't live to tell about it. I knew someone like that. And there's a sense in which to say he actually died by faith, by his faith. Well, I can lighten up a little bit. When your pastor, Kerry, was little, when he was a little guy, what he used to do, he did it a number of times. I'd come into the kitchen and there was a refrigerator just inside the door and he would be on top of the refrigerator and when I walked by, he'd jump on me. I mean, he did this again and again. I'd get after him, but he'd do it. You have to know what a rascal he was. Probably still is. But you know, that was a misplaced faith. If, if uh, I had ducked or if I'd been over to pick something up, it would have been not so good for Carrie. The object of your faith is important. So by scripture, and by analogy, we conclude that Abraham's faith was, was not exemplary due to its inner strength, strong as it was, but because of the object was God. We all have faith. But the crucial decisive issue is where we place the faith we have. Now, Abraham grasped two massive concepts about God. First... You see it in verse 17. He understood that God gives life to the dead. I understood that implicitly. Uh, we have no uh, record in the Old Testament of a resurrection as such. We have hints of the resurrection, but there is no explicit teaching about the coming resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. But Abraham believed in God's resurrecting power. You say, how so? Genesis 22, God has told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
So he builds a pyre, gets ready with the fire, gets out a sacrificial knife to kill his son. He was willing to go through it because God had commanded him to do so. And you remember how God called to him, Abraham, Abraham, and pointed to a ram caught in the thicket as a sacrifice. But, but, but how could Abraham bring himself to even contemplate doing that kind of thing? How could he? Well, very interestingly, Hebrews 11 chapter tells us, and this is really informative about him. This is Hebrews 11:17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then it says about Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, Abraham believed that God gives life to the dead. That's a massive, massive understanding of God. That he can raise the dead. Give life to the dead. Secondly, he saw, and you see it there in our text, he saw that God is a God, in verse 17, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, calling things into existence that do not exist, there's a theological term for it. You, you hear it used all the time in culture today when you say you create something out of nothing. That's creation ex nihilo, from nothing. And we get that because when you read the opening chapter of Genesis, over, after the first few verses, it says, God said, let there be light, there was light. And then God spoke, and God spoke, and God spoke. And God created everything by his word out of nothing, ex nihilo. There's a sense in which for all purposes, he created Isaac, ex nihilo. Abraham was next to dead. His wife was next to dead. So that what you get with Abraham is this massive view of God who creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He needs nothing to create from, and he gives life to the dead. That is the God that Abraham believed in. Massive view of God. You know, what you think about God and your view of God is everything. It defines you. It defines your place in life and your place in eternity. Um, there was a, a great uh, scholar at Princeton Seminary years ago by the name of Robert Dick Wilson. He was a professor of Old Testament and uh, and uh, Dr. Wilson was also a founding professor at Westminster Seminary where I taught for a few years, got to know the people. In fact, I, I couldn't believe it when I got there and saw his picture in the library, this really august-looking portrait, oil po portrait. I, 
Uh, I was so impressed I wanted to burn candles in front of it. Um, and uh, there's a story about him. And that's why I wanted to see this picture and know a little more about him. One of his students had been invited to preach at, at Princeton's Miller Chapel. This was about a decade after his graduation. And old Dr. Wilson came and sat down near the front. And at the close of the preaching, the old professor got up, came to the student, approached him, cocked his head characteristically to one side, stuck out his hand and said, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once to hear a student preach. I'm glad that you are, and he gave a term, a big godder. He said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. His former student asked him to explain and replied, well, some men have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on the behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. He paused a moment, smiled at his former student. God bless you and then turned and shuffled out of Miller Chapel. I've been to Miller Chapel. I can imagine that scene. You see, if our view of God is exalted as Abraham's, if we believe that God is so vast that he creates out of nothing by his word, and that he gives life to the dead, if you really believe that, then you have a big God a big God or so to speak. It'll make all the difference in our faith. So we go back all those thousands of years to Abraham when he stood under the stars, he had a big God who creates out of nothing, he understood Genesis, and gives life to the dead. But he faced a great uh, uh, obstacle here and the promise that he's going to be the father of his uh, is children numbered by the stars so to speak and so God uh, so the, the book of Romans uh, indicates what's happened I want you to see if you can see what the obstacles are in verses 18 through 20 the obstacles of this happening in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as it has been told so shall your offspring be he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God and you see what he faced two massive 
obstacles. The obvious barrier is the, the biological impossibility of Sarah at her age giving birth. And, and his age at almost 100. And then the less obvious article is the staggering nature of the promise. What a promise to a man who's almost 100 years old that he's going to have progeny like the sand in the sea. I mean, that is so wonderful to believe it. To believe that he would be blessed and he would be the father of many nations. I mean, that is mind-boggling. That challenges belief. And the first part of verse 20 touches on this when it says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Though it was so incredible, when God said it, he didn't vacillate. I mean, birthdays came and went. 87, 92, 98, 99, year after year, another candle placed on his whatever he was eating, his baklava. And then God told him the promised son would be born the very next year at that age. And through all of this, he didn't waver, he didn't vacillate, he believed. Now I think a lot of people, especially, are under the impression that when a person has faith, when he has faith, I'm talking about the culture around and perhaps in the church, when a person has faith, he inwardly agrees to ignore the facts. Got faith. But, uh, and they see that faith and facts are mutually exclusive. But we have, a, we have a word, and you'll hear it around, that faith without reason is called fideism. That's faithism. Reason without faith is rationalism, right? In practice, there can be no reduction of faith to reason, and likewise, there must be no reduction of reason to faith, because biblical faith is a composite of reason and faith. And so Abraham did make an unreasonable leap of faith because he combined both together. He'd looked at everything, he'd looked at God, and he decided what he was going to do. It was a rational choice of faith. He rationally weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word. And so he decided that if God was God, nothing was impossible and he believed then the bare word of God. Uh, Genesis 17, 17 chapter reveals that God appeared before him and spoke directly to him, revealing himself in, in the name, as you know, El Shaddai, that is a God of bounty and a God of reproduction. That's what that name of God uh, implies. And he laughed. And amidst that involuntary laughter, that incredulous laughter, he believed. 
So he believed God. Genesis 17. It was going to happen. The impossible was going to happen. Um, must have been something when he told Sarah the great news, huh? I can imagine Sarah saying, where you been? He says, well, I, I've been outside uh, praying, having my devotions. Sarah says, how was it? Abraham says, it was great. I had a conversation with God. And he told me something amazing. She said, what was it? And then he blurted out, I mean, he's a man, right? You're going to have a baby next year. I would have liked to have heard what she said then. See, Abraham believed God. And we know exactly what he believed. We've been talking about it. He believed that God is the one who gives life to the dead and also called everything into existence. This massive faith. And the faith that uh, Dr. Wilson talked about of being a big godder. Verse 18 of our text says, in hope he believed against hope. That is, against all human hope, Abraham, through hope in God's promises, believed, and so he became the father of many nations. He believed. Uh, this, this Abraham going back to believing God's word back in Genesis is foundational to all of us. It, it, is, it is repeated again and again and again in Romans 4 that by faith we are counted as righteous. Abraham believed God. He was counted as righteous. We believe God's word and righteousness is accounted to us. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote, In hope against all human hope, self-desperate, I believe. Faith, mighty faith, the promises sees and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. So if you apply it to ourselves, if God is who he says he is, none of his promises will fail. He won't forget. It won't be beyond his power. And I think our problem is that, that many keep in the back of their minds, we'll call them unexercised suspicions, that what we say we believe about God's power is not really true. For all the lip service about trust in God, we rely chiefly on what we can do ourselves, and what we need is an exorcism of suspicion and rest totally upon God's word. Now, what was the objective of Abraham's faith? Well, first, it tells us in verse 20, it was to glorify God. Last, last line of verse 20, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. And that is what he did. And then listen very closely if you're wondering about this matter of saving faith, what it really is. Because 
Many say that verse 21 of our text is one of the best definitions of faith in the Bible as it describes Abraham as, and I'm quoting, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Do you believe that? Are you fully convinced that God will do what he has promised? Verse 22 concludes the description of Abraham's faith by saying, it was counted to him as righteousness. See, faith that makes us righteous embraces the immensity of God who creates everything out of nothing and gives life to the dead. You see, who did he first give life to the dead to? Jesus, right? When he was resurrected from the dead. So what are we called to believe today? It is so simple, but it's to be to believed without reservation. And that is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, when we believe in Jesus as put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification, we believe in God who gives life to the dead, right? That's who we believe in. So I stand here this morning. In the whole train of Abraham's faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Then I preached this morning that when we believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures, it is what? Counted to us as righteousness. That's the gospel. That's Paul's gospel. Let me read how Paul says it again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Abraham looked up at the sky above, considered the impossibility of his situation at 100 years old, the impossibility, but he believed the bare word of God. He believed that what God said he would do, the impossible God would do, and it was counted to him for righteousness. All of us apart from God are impossibly lost. We can't save ourselves, can we? But if we believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised to life in the glorious resurrection for our justification and we rest on that, we receive our salvation by grace alone. For by grace are you saved through faith and this not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. Abraham believed. Do you believe? That is the great question. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, our whole gospel is rooted in a narrative that goes back to creation, back to the patriarchs, down through the centuries to Jesus and his death and resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel and the church and continuity. And we thank you, Father, that it is so simple, so simple to believe God and be accounted as righteous. Help our unbelief, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.